This is the scripture reading today from the Revised Common Lectionary. It is from Isaiah chapter 1. I won't get too much into the context today of the greater book of Isaiah, but scholars say that you can divide Isaiah properly into two books, 1st Isaiah and 2nd Isaiah. 1st Isaiah is quite woeful, shall we say, dark, brooding, talks about everything that's gone wrong in a society. And then in 2nd Isaiah, there is a turn of restoration and hope uh, where God raises up His people again. And this is the opening salvo of Isaiah 1, and you'll see that it sets the tone for the first half of that book. These are the visions that Isaiah of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He saw these visions during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah, meaning that he lived through a number of administrations. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now. Let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. The Word of God for the people of God. It was 40 years ago this summer when an American president unexpectedly was beamed into the homes of watching citizens to deliver what more than one historian has called, quote, the greatest moral appeal from a sitting president since Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. Well, let's go back to Lincoln first, because getting compared to the man who guided this country through a civil war is no trite comparison. When Lincoln was sworn in to take a second term as president, his first had been consumed, of course, by war. He took office in the early spring of 1861, having to come to Washington in disguise because of so many death threats against him. And within a month, the South has seceded from the Union. The war was fought at first to hold the country together with slavery being a secondary issue. But finally, thankfully, slavery became the moral cause to free those in chains first and then, if possible, to save the wholeness of the country. In March of 1865, just a month before the war would end and about six weeks before he would be assassinated, Lincoln made that inaugural address the high point of ethical rhetoric by any president to ever live. This is a portion of it. In this war, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes God's aid against the other. The Almighty has His own purposes. American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God He now wills to remove. And He has given to both the North and the South this terrible 
as the, as the woe due to us. Fondly we do hope, fervently we do pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the slave owners shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said today, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. Thus, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up this nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting among ourselves and with all nations. Wow. When was the last time ever a president stood and said, this is the woe due to us. We brought this on ourselves. But that's what Lincoln said. Slavery has torn this nation apart. We must face this truth. And we accept the hideous outcome of our sin. And we turn to bind up our wounds. To care for those who have bore the brunt of this battle. And to heal our souls. That is not the usual line. No matter which party is in power, is it? Humility, honesty, repentance. So when historians say that a president has delivered the greatest moral appeal since Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, maybe we should turn our attention to it. Forty years is long enough now to make such a judgment. And when you hear a portion of this address, I hope you will realize, indeed, that few politicians have challenged our ethics like this in our lifetimes president was Jimmy Carter and in the summer of 1979 against his advisor's wishes he delivered what has become known as the malaise speech it was a sermon really that he called the crisis of confidence and he spoke it as the Sunday school teacher he was and still is full disclosure I worked once for Habitat for Humanity and President Carter has been friendly to me he once and said some general about them. <laughs> but before you think that I was campaigning for him back in 79, I was eight years old. <laughs> and my parents didn't even vote for him. But I have great admiration and affection toward this man. And here's a part of what he said that summer. And these words have held up over 40 years. As I was preparing to speak, I began to ask myself the same question that I now know has been troubling many of you. Why have we not been able to get together as a nation to resolve our serious problems? It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper than inflation or recession, all the legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with America. In a nation that was once proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption 
Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we're discovering that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We have learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of which have no confidence or have no purpose. And what you see too often is a system that seems incapable of action. Twisted and pulled in every direction by hundreds of well-financed and powerful special interests. You see extreme positions defended to the last vote, to the last breath, by one unyielding group or another. You see a balanced and fair approach that demands a little sacrifice from everyone, abandoned like an orphan without support and without friends. And summarizing, the path I've warned about tonight leads to fragmentation and self-interest. Down that road lies a mistaken idea of freedom, the right to grasp for ourselves some advantage over someone else. That path would be one of constant conflict between narrow interest ending in nothing but chaos, immobility, and failure. Forty years ago. He concludes, With God's help and for the sake of our nation, it is time to join hands. These words have been on my mind these last couple of weeks. In my lifetime, and I know people have come to me when I say something like this, and they say, oh, you should have seen the 60s. (laughs) I don't know if I wanted to see the 60s, quite honestly. But in my lifetime, in my lifetime, our society has never been more divided, more entrenched along ideological lines, But it's not that we just need to kiss and make up and come together. It's this wanton, casual way we have grown to accept how things are. There is this fable, and I know know you've probably heard it, about the frog in the kettle. There he is. If you take a frog, some scientists say, and you put him into a kettle of boiling water, He will jump out immediately. Water's too hot. Take that same frog and put him in a kettle of lukewarm water. And over the course of hours, begin to raise the temperature bit by bit, slowly, slowly, and that frog will boil in that water. Because the temperature rises by degrees. And the same can be said of societies. Society just doesn't wake up one day and we're at each other's throats. It happens bit by bit, week by week, year by year, degree by degree. And when I hear someone say, and I've said it myself, oh, this is just how it is now. There's nothing we can do. This is just the new normal. I don't buy that. I don't accept that. I don't want my children reaping the bitter, boiling harvest of that kind of attitude. I'm not willing yet to give up on decency, on what is just and what is ethical, on what is compassionate and what is right. I'm not willing yet to give up on life. I'm not ready yet to surrender to the suicide machine that we are creating, and that is what it is. Who is hurting us? 
Who is doing this to us? It's not some enemy on the other side of the world or on the other side of a border. We are killing ourselves. To quote Abraham Lincoln one more time, 25 years, 25 years before he was president, 25 years before the first shot of the Civil War was fired, shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step across the ocean and crush us? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure on earth with a Bonaparte for a commander could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or reach the Blue Ridge Mountains. In a trial of a thousand years, where then is the danger? If it ever reaches us, it will spring up amongst us. If destruction be our lot, we must, our, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. If we die, it will be death by suicide. Yes, we need God's help in this country. We need to join hands. We need civility and cooperation, but we also need to face the truth that all the legislation in the world can't fix what's wrong with our hearts and our souls. We are our own worst enemy. And we are reaping in many ways the woe that is due to us. To quote Croatian theologian Miroslav Vov, there is something deeply hypocritical about praying for a problem you are unwilling to resolve. And unless we are willing to change, willing, if I might use an old-fashioned word from the tent revival meetings, unless we're willing to repent, nothing will change. That's what Isaiah says. Our lectionary reading today, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. What? Well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't harmed anyone. I'm pro-life. Well, good for you. But pro-life is a lot bigger than a woman's fetus. Pro-life is an ethical view at everything. When an old man has to choose between buying his insulin or paying his rent, how much life is there in that? When we hold children, not gang members, but children, in detention, how is that life-giving? When we see three million cases of child abuse every year in this country, how do we continue to tolerate that? When we have the highest number of incarcerated inmates in the world, how is that not a sign that something is wrong? When children are afraid to go to school for fear of being shot, when you can't shop at Walmart without being suspicious of the guy pushing the cart next to you, when a half a million families have to file bankruptcy every year because they can't afford their medical bills, when the cases of anti-Semitism and hate crimes only increase over time. Is that not an indictment against our entire society? When a quarter of this nation's children live in poverty, how does that not land on all of us? When we spend more on weapons of war than on education, veterans, science, poverty, agriculture, and housing combined, is that not cause to question our commitment to life? Jacques Ellul, crazy Frenchman, who was half socialist, sociologist, excuse me, and half theologian. That'll get you in trouble these days, too. 
he said this, in a society like ours, meaning an advanced, technologically advanced Western society, it's almost impossible for a person to be responsible for anything. Each person simply carries out their individual task and they don't realize how they are connected to the whole. And the example he gives is a dam that breaks. There's a dam in the countryside, just like this one. Water comes pouring over it. The dam collapses. They launch an investigation. How could this happen? And the engineer says, I just took measurements. So they go to the contractor. I was just following the blueprints. So they go to the guy that poured the concrete. I just poured this one section. They go to the mayor in town. We didn't see any need to not follow just the simple 100-year flood plan. And when it's all said and done, no one is responsible because everyone is responsible. That's how communities work. We live in this great country with great communities, but we are connected to everything around us. Our actions, our words, what we believe, what we act on, what we don't act on are all connected to a bigger piece of the puzzle. We become guilty when we throw up our hands and say, well, that's just how it is. There's nothing that I can do. The blood is on our hands and the shame is on our heads. If we retreat to our gated communities and kick back with an $80 bottle of wine and turn on the news and say, tisk, 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 it sure is bad out there. There is no out there. There is only here. There is only here. Well, this sounds a whole lot like you're preaching some kind of social gospel. Well, what other kind is there? Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father, the Apostle James says, means caring for the orphans and the widows in their distress. The whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as you love, not live, but love yourself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. Any gospel that does not push us to do the right thing right here, right now, is not the gospel. It is a counterfeit. Now, I know that I'm going to get a lot of whataboutisms. Do you know what those are? Well, what about borders, and what about my rights, and what about him, and what about her, and what about them, and what about this, and what about that? Well, hold your horses. I'm not talking about policy. I'm not talking about politicians or political parties. I'm talking about principle, about Christ-filled compassion, about regaining our conscience. Besides, you must know by now that no political party, candidate, platform, or promise is going to put this country together. It is one great corrupt competition for dollars and for power. And there's no one riding over the hill to come save us from ourselves. The only prescription that will work is this one written by Isaiah 3,000 years ago. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Defend the cause of the orphan. Fight for the rights of the widows. Come now, let us settle this. I love the old translation. Come, let us reason together. It's as if God is saying, 
I gave you some common sense. Come, let us sit down and reason together that your sins that were scarlet can be made as white as snow. God forgives. God restores. God blesses compassion and justice and fairness. Let's turn to one another and for God's sakes, for our sake, for the sake of our children, love one another. Start right there. What can I do about this world? Start right there. Be ye kind one to another. Love one another as I have loved you. No man has greater love than this than to lay down his life. Give up some of your rights and your wants and the things that you are so staunch in defending. No greater love have any man than this than to lay those down for somebody else. Nothing out of Washington or Tallahassee or the Walton County Administrative Building will help us one, one iota until we do this. Until we defend the innocent. Until we learn to be unselfish and give up our greed. Until we relearn how to be good neighbors. Until we look at every person we meet as the made in the image of God creation that they are. Nothing will change until the church remembers how to convert would-be racists to the welcoming love of God. Until we intervene in the lives of children who would otherwise end up in prison. Until we start advocating for the poor, for widows who can't understand their Medicaid paperwork, for those who can't speak English but are trying to do the right thing, for those under the threat of violence. Until we are ready to use our voice for the least of these, we have nothing else to say. After all, it was the least of these that Jesus said to look for. And that's where we would find Him. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the gathered in His presence. And He will separate the people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed Me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked? When did we ever see you sick or in prison? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Let us go out, as Clarence Jordan used to say, and classify ourselves. That we belong to Christ because the love of God is expressed to all that we meet.